Hello and welcome to this episode of Eldrick Talks. Today I'm talking with Walter Stephen Gidding. Walter had quite an exciting life to say the least. As a boy he ran away from home, then he became a prosecutor before starting to write his first book and with all of that he still found the time for four marriages and a second career as a private lawyer. I hope you will enjoy this interview as much as I did. Walter, what does nature mean to you? Nature to me is the unvarnished stuff that the world is made out of. Uh, unfortunately, too often modern man connected by the vast umbilical cord of the internet is uh, hell-bent on destroying nature. I seek to get back to it in my writings, which concentrates in the 1800s of uh, the southwestern United States. And you live a life within nature, right? I absolutely do. I live on uh, the banks of a river called Elk River in southwest Missouri. I've got a cabin there. I've lived there uh, 40 years. It is, it's named Solitaire. It is my diamond in the rough, and it is basically what keeps me sane in this world. Is that that kind of life in the cabin there? Is it something you always wanted? Uh, yes. I, I actually uh, grew up a country boy. I lived in the country. Uh, my dad was an FBI agent, but I was born in Washington, D.C., but uh, I moved back home when I was about two or three. Uh, country boy, I went to school in a small town, uh, always ran around in the country back roading and uh, just lived a free, simple life that most folks today can't even imagine. And then when I ran away, that was an extension, and uh, I, I grew up out on the road. You ran away? When, when did you run away and why? I was, uh, like I said, I was the son of an FBI agent, and like all young men, I believe, uh, as I reached my teens, my dad got more and more dumb, and uh, he was a self-defense instructor, and one day he decided to uh, teach me how dumb I was and started peeling off his shirt, and I knew he was, <laughs> I knew that what he was getting ready to do, in fact, he said, let's just see how tough of an old boy you are. And uh, I took off. I said, it's not a good day to die. I took off and hid in a tree till him and mom went out to supper. And uh, I think I just turned 18 like a month ago. And I grabbed my best friend or what I call my brother by a different mother. And we went off to see the world. And was that a, a permanent exit from, from your family? Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I left for a period of years. We were, we were out on the road for several years. We went anywhere from uh, Mexico to up, you know, up to uh, looking out. You could basically see Canada either direction, east, west, north, south. You name it, point a finger, and I've probably been there, with the exception of California. And did you reconcile with your family at some point again? Absolutely. I uh, I don't know. I was probably. 22, maybe 23, when I finally came home, uh, you know, it, it was like all of a sudden dad became smart again and, and he never, <laughs> I was the dumb one and I realized it. So I came home and it was like mom and dad were waiting for me. They just said I was kind of like the prodigal son. When I came home, everything fell back into place and I started growing from there. So do you feel that this was a, And maybe a necessary, a good thing to do, or was it was it an overreaction? It was a, it was, it was a necessary. You mean the hitting the road? Yeah. 
Yeah, it was necessary for me because uh, all of my books are character driven. And everything that Jack and Jim do in these books, Jack being my alter ego, Jim, my very best friend in the world, were derived from the uh, experiences that we had out on the road. And uh, every time one of those two characters remembers back, that real life experience actually happened. And a lot of times they're just about as as, uh, crazy as the fiction I weave them around. Did you always... Do you always want to write? I have been a writer. I wrote my first poem when I was seven, Mom said. Uh, my dad was a writer and a storyteller. He uh, he was a radio man for the uh, Navy just after World War II, and they looked for missile silos over Russia. And he wrote his stories. They were based in Africa, and all his stuff is like reading modern Arabian Nights. So... Yes, I've always wanted to write short story. And what kind of what kind of books would you say growing up had the biggest impact and the biggest influence on you? Oh my, uh, Swiss Family Robinson, Robinson Crusoe, uh, anything by Charles Dickens, the classics. And is, is, are these authors, these kind of books, something that you feel that you want to? let's say, get on the same level as and, and and imitate to some extent? Or do you feel that your attempt is more, I want to go beyond what they've written and maybe write something better than that? Uh, could I write anything better than them? No. Uh, I would, I, I try to put myself on the level or, or am on the level of every person that I bump up against in the world. And that's the person that I'm seeking to put my book out there for. What do you, what do you mean with that exactly? I write for a common person that if, if I'm sitting on my riverbank cabin and a person floats by and I say, hey, would you like a book to read? I, I want that person, regardless of who they are, or where they came from, to enjoy that work. Not necessarily to uh, have a certain level of person or reach a level to where that person would enjoy it. Does, does that does that mean that you I mean of course authors like Charles Dickens have also wrote popular literature but what would you, what would you say that your relationship with higher literature let's say Nobel literature prize kind of stuff what is your relationship with with those kind of works what would my relationship be with I enjoy those kind of works do I want to be that stilted in my uh, Reading and writing, no. Uh, I, I guess that uh, what I'm trying to say is, uh, you know, I, when I read a more academic type writing, or or uh, I, it it kind of puts me off. I, I want to write something that's in the uh, more normal vernacular of, of of the world. You know, I want I want common Joe of the world to be able to pick up my book and read it and go, well, that's great. On your website, you write, among other things, that you were married four times so far. Correct. How, I mean, that's probably a question that you ask yourself too, but how, how did that come about? I got married the first time when uh, my wife was 15 and I was 17. So it was basically kids marrying kids and having kids. Uh, 
my oldest son is a product of that union, and I'm, I'm very, we, and we weren't married. She got pregnant, you know, and uh, so we got married. I wanted my son to have my name. That lasted about a year. Uh, I went out on the road, and uh, I was bouncing back and forth. Uh, the next time I was uh, 22, 23, that, that union lasted about and produced my youngest daughter. Uh, that lasted several years. Uh, in between those, I tried a couple stabs at college, went to for a year of uh, electronics. Uh, my wife, uh, that then wife, uh, became an electronics technician, started working for a hospital. She decided that, that uh, she was better than me. I was working for a place called, at that time, uh, working for a place called Color Time, which was a TV rental. And uh, she got ashamed of my little uniform and said that I would never be anything without her, which kind of hurt since I was raising her two kids plus ours. <laughs> and I said, it's time for me to go. And she said, nah, you'll never be anything without me. And I said, well, I won't be here when you get home. So, And I left. That was the next one. Uh, so we were together several years. The next one, I, well, I was in my 30s. I met a bartender of all people. And uh, we got married. That lasted about, oh, a year. Uh, she would be coming in and getting off work when I was getting up for, to start the day. So that just never really hit. And Plus, she was kind of mean. She was a uh, half Apache and half German. <laughs> I carried a big knife, and she pulled it on me one day. I said, well, this is time to go. Wow. And the fourth one, I... Uh, one day I woke up, I was in my 30s, I think I was 38, and uh, I decided, you know what, and, you know, I went through my drug-filled years and all that, uh, and I said, if, if I don't change now, I will never change, I'll die the way I am. And I remember asking my dad, you know, how long do you think it'll take if I go to school, Dad, to become an attorney? And he said, uh, oh, two or three years. <laughs> I went to five years of undergrad, three years of law school, and eight year, eight and a half years later, I became an attorney. Uh, right after that, I, well, actually, I was <clears throat> in my fifth year of undergrad. I became an English major with a minor in paralegal studies. And in my last semester, I met my current wife. There was a, went to New Year's, and I met her on New Year's Day. And uh, we've been together ever since. When I got accepted at law school, about four months later, I said, Linda, you want to go? And I can't promise you anything other than we're together now and probably will be forever if, if it works out. And uh, she said, yeah, we sold everything we didn't have. And uh, off to Tulsa we went. I drove my old 66 Rambler with no heater and no windshield wipers. And she had an old 1975 Chevy truck. And she drove a school bus for three years and helped support me while we went through school. And the day I, uh, day I got my license, I asked her to marry me, and, and uh, we've been together ever since. That was 1997. Mm -hmm. So a bit of a happy end there. Yes, absolutely. What do you say to that you... To this day, we fight and make up. <laughs> what, do you, what do you say that you approached this, this marriage maybe also in a different way than you did the, the previous ones? Oh, sure. Yeah, I, you know, I, in fact, I told her, I said, I, I won't marry you unless I can support you. And uh, when I found out I could, that's when we did. And the other three were just like, yeah, basically lust. <laughs> I guess you might say. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
you mentioned that you study the law. How how was that experience? I am a study in the law, to be honest with you. When obviously my my dad was an FBI agent, so I grew up the son of a lawman. My great grandfather was a sheriff in the a little town down here in the county I'm in. Uh, two of my nephews, one ran drug interdiction on the high seas outside of Galveston, and, and uh, my other nephew was a member of the Tri-County uh, Major Crimes Task Force in the county to the north of me. And so I, you know, I knew I didn't want to be a cop, but I, I was always interested in the law because the law applied. When we ran away from home, we were dodging the law about half the time because we weren't necessarily criminals, but we just did crazy stuff that borderlined on illegal. So I went all through that. Never never got caught for anything serious, but uh, I, I knew what was involved. And then as the years flew by and I grew out of it, I went into law. And I remember once I got my law degree, I was sitting on the creek bank and the river patrol floated up and they said, well, why don't you run for a prosecutor? And I thought, okay, I'm not making any money out of my bedroom where I was working, you know, so I ran for prosecutor and won, prosecuting attorney in the county I'm in, became elected prosecutor, and for the next eight years, I uh, prosecuted cases, hit the ground running, tried cases, prosecuted cases, loved it. But the interesting part of that was that uh, my whole life, I had dodged the law off and on, and I'd get in the courtroom and I'd let, you know, the, uh, we'd sit there in the defense attorney and I'd be sitting there and the defendant's sitting over somewhere. Obviously, you know, they act like they're not listening or we act like we're talking and they can't hear us, but it's a quiet courtroom. And the defense attorney would say something like, uh, well, this is what my client says happened. And I'd go, eh, yeah, bullshit. This is what happened. Been there, done that. So my prior life as a ne'er-do-well or slash criminal glued me into what those guys sitting there were trying to, you know, they were trying to pull one over on me. And I'd go, no, you know, if, if you want an offer, you wait preliminary hearing and take this offer because it's a good deal. And if you don't, that offer expires. So I found myself using my past experience, my past life, uh, to enhance my decisions and, and work over a criminal defense attorney and get a good re prosecutorial result. And law school just, just had that effect, and, and the my prior life made me more effective. As a prosecutor, or let's say as, as a younger version of yourself that had uh, one or another run-ins with the law, would you have been, if you just imagine a situation that the younger, the younger you is sitting in front of, the older you, the prosecutor, would the younger you be lucky to have you as a prosecutor? Absolutely. I Part of my past experience always said, you know, treat the other guy like you'd like to be treated. And I, I don't, I wouldn't say instinctively, but I always tried to give those people the benefit of the doubt. And I'd let them, I'd give them the best deal I could first time around. You know, if you if you if you uh, fooled me the first time, you weren't going to get a second chance. But I give you the benefit of the doubt the first time around, and I've always wanted to be treated like that. But the second time and the third time was different. Then you get hammered. That's just uh, you know, you fool me once. That's 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 on me. You won't fool me again because I will get you. 
So what kind of what kind of reputation did you have? Very fair. I can't count. I, I went into private practice after I got out of uh, prosecuting, and countless people walked through my door as a defense attorney and a civil law attorney and said, "You prosecuted me and uh, you hammered me, but you were fair. I deserved it. Now I want you to be my attorney." <laughs> it was funny. I made a lot of money off people that I'd uh, prosecuted. And they were happy to do it. They they trusted me. For one thing, if I gave them my word back then, good or bad, might you can take my word to the bank because I, one thing in my life, and and uh, I will carry it to my grave, is if I say something, I'll move heaven and earth to try to make that work. Was your approach then as a prosecutor also maybe in a sense, maybe a bigger picture to make the area a bit safer? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I... Uh, I always, I would not try a case unless I believed in it. And I approach life like that. If I will not do something unless I believe in it. Uh, and to this second, I'm that way. I've got to believe in, in your cause or in myself. And uh, before I take it on, and once I take it on, I'll, I'll carry it through as to the best of my ability. So you only really took cases where you thought you had a, a good probability of of winning that or at least uh, striking no, a, a I, no player. that's not what i said i said i would take those cases on i didn't cherry pick my cases uh if a case come across my desk and it was now that's not to say if a case come up and, and it was you know and i had to spend the state's money in thousands and thousands that i knew that based on the evidence that there was going to be no hope of succeeding It was my unhappy duty to tell those people, I can't prosecute this because we won't win. But if there was any chance of succeeding, and I believed in that case, you bet. I was I was all over it. Were there any kind of categorical cases where you say something like that? I, I will, I don't want to prosecute that. When I would would take not take a case on, it had to be like, there's going to be a 70% chance or better that... I'm going to lose because unless it was just something so egregious that, you know, I, I would just take it just because it was so bad, but very seldom. If I didn't have a chance of winning, I, I had to tell the people, we can't do it. You're going to lose. And that's a, that's a hard thing to do to a victim. No. Oh. And what was, what was the exact motivation to go from prosecuting to private practice? Well, the, the position is an elected position, and unfortunately, I, I did it two terms, which eight years, ran for the third term, and uh, I was in the Republican club. Uh, the Republicans, just like anywhere else, the Republican clubs run by a bunch of power, happy people, and they recognized what I was doing. I was taking the arsenal in my disposal and I would hire, you know, expert witnesses. I, I would make my case to where I could win. And they, the money wasn't theirs, but they'd see me using county money, which was earmarked for the prosecuting attorney's office to make myself more effective. And they didn't like it because uh, I had control of the purse strings on that. So they, they used their power to get me voted out the third time around. That was the only reason I left or I'd have got my third term. Plus, After three terms, you vest, called vesting, and you get half of your current income as a retirement plan. And they didn't want to pay me that either. Mm. But I would expect that being a private lawyer also pays quite well. It, it does, but, you know, the what burned me out uh, in private practice 
one, you know, as defense attorney, I'd basically tell my criminal defendants, you know, this is uh, damage control. This is what we can do, and, and you basically know you did it, don't you? And they'd oh, yeah, I did it. <laughs> okay. I can't go any farther than this because I'm your attorney, but I get you the absolute best I can do. That part was okay. But when I got into civil practice, especially divorces, uh, paternity, things like that, the almost 95% of the time people started using their children against each other. And, mm. you know, a little kid, it's just your mom, your dad, what are you guys fighting? They still love both sides. And unfortunately, it seems like the people harden their hearts and, and the children are just pawns. And it broke my heart. You know, I've got all, I've, you know, 14 grandkids and two natural kids and two stepkids. And it just broke my heart. I couldn't do it anymore. Would you fire them as clients then when you would realize that they do something like that? Well, you, you can't really do that. Once you get in on a civil case, the judge has to let you out and the judge does not let you out. Those cases where, for example, in a divorce where then they start using the kids against each other, those were, as you said, cases that you didn't enjoy that much. But were there cases where you that you were, well, you were kind of excited because for whatever reason it was easy to deal with or good clients or just fun work. Absolutely. You know, they're, they're too far far apart, too few, but yeah, the, uh, and I call them the, the, the parents grow up a little bit. Typically it's where the parents each split up and uh, they get over their mad or hurt, you know, On a divorce, usually there's one side's cheating or uh, one side's just mad at the other one. Well, the, the mad and the cheating part, if time goes by, both sides start healing. And after about, and it's, this is scientific data, you know, and after about three to six months, the parties just say, you know, let's just get our attorney, get a, a you know, get two attorneys, get one attorney. If the parties all agree, I've, I've done more than one where both parties would use me, but both parties have to agree with everything. And, and they've grown up and they come in and sign off on everything, uh, sign off on how the, you know, the children visitation will be. And it's a wonderful feeling that people look at each other and go, why didn't we do this sooner? Well, they couldn't do that sooner. They were mad at each other and they were broken hearted. So the healing process had started and that made them easy to work with. Were you then also at times bit of a bit of a therapist for the couples sure yeah you know more than once i've sat here and told you uh, you know i've sat and told them not the, the whole process you know there's the first the mad and the, and the hurt and there's the healing and then there's the let's get over it and get it done you know it's, but it's you know all that takes months of time and i would tell them right up front as soon as they walked in they'd look at me like oh you're crazy And I go, okay, well, the other side's going to go get an attorney. It's going to cost you about three times as much. But uh, don't say I didn't tell you so. And six months later, they'd come in and say, man, you were right. I go, yeah. I've watched it happen several hundred times. How often did you deal with the police when you were a prosecutor? Daily. As a, the elected prosecutor is, uh, they are the top cop in the entire county. You won't hear that out of the police station and the sheriff's office, but uh, the, the sheriff and the police, they charge people. Uh, they make the calls. They pick up the people. They uh, 
while they refer the incident reports up to the prosecuting attorney, I have the absolute final say as to whether I want to charge or not or throw it out the window. So I was their boss, literally. And did you get along with them well? Not really. Uh, they are an agency basically independent of the prosecutor's office. And it just burnt them up something terrible to have to come up and say, hey, how about this? And I'd go. And unfortunately, in our little county, and probably in a lot of little places across the United States, police are uh, not real up in the law or they want to bend the law a little bit to suit their uh, information or their facts. And I was the one that, that caught it. You know, I, you know, when you go through the law school, you're well-versed in reading legal articles. And uh, I'd read through their stuff and say, you don't have it. You know, you don't have a... You don't have what the charge, you know, you don't have what it takes to make the charge that you put the number down for. And they'd get mad. And I'd go, you know, you can go rewrite it. And as long as your facts are straight, I'll look at it again. But, you know, I went through that on a daily basis or uh, even a, in this little county, even like a major case, like a murder. The next county up, you'd get a, a case file that'd be, 20 pages down here you get one page that was half filled and i'd go where's everything else oh that's all of it and i go no it isn't take this and finish it up and they get mad at me and i go you know i want to i want to succeed in doing what i do so you're gonna you're gonna do this or the case won't go forward did you already start or did you already write while being a prosecutor I I wrote poetry back then. I, I started writing poetry, like I said, when I was a kid, and I would uh, I would write them on scraps of paper and just you know and give them to people and and uh, throw them in drawers. And my wife finally said, "Get them all together, <laughs> put them in one drawer, so we can get them. You know, and quit quit losing them because I lost hundreds of them." And uh, so the poetry I had written in, in I think 2016 or something like that, I put all those together. 2017 and and uh, created a poetry book that ca it's called pictures of life it's it's on my website you know walterstephengating.com if you like poetry and i also uh, wrote a christmas poem so every christmas that we had i'd sit at the dinner table and i'd read my christmas poem for my family i finally put 20 or 30 of them together in some short stories and made even the my skip fat which is my christmas poetry book But when my burnout years came from all the uh, people that used their kids against each other, which was sometime in 2016, you know, I was already in private practice, and that's when I really started putting my uh, novels together. And what exactly is it about uh, poetry that you're, after all those years, that you're still interested in it? I don't, well, I, I call them my rhyming mind pictures. I had, God has given me the ability to uh, take I usually do uh, five stanza poems, and I in five stanzas I can do a short story. And with artistic license, you can shorten or lengthen uh, your your lines, and and get a picture across that. If a person reads it, in their they'll form in their mind a, a color picture of what I'm writing about. And I just love that aspect of poetry. I always have. Uh, plus. Emily Dickinson, I believe uh, that's my favorite poet line of all time. You know, I, I burn my candle at both ends. It will not last the night. 
all my foes and all my friends, it gives a wondrous light. And that's just stuck with me forever. And that's, that's what I always wanted to do. But I guess it's probably quite difficult to, uh, to, to make a living writing poetry. It is. You know, uh, probably 90% of the people in the world don't like poetry for whatever reason. I don't know. But uh, that's the way it is. So that's okay. I, I write for my heart. I don't write for other people. I love it when they pick one up and say, hey, this is great. And I give them away for presents. I've, from the second I met my wife, I write her a, uh, you know, she gets a Valentine's poem with some flowers and she gets a, a uh, you know, when we have an anniversary, she gets an anniversary poem. Mm -hmm. Always has. And then what was the situation like where, where you finally found the determination to say, you know, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write a good, well, uh, finished novel. Right. I, uh, like I said, I think my first one, I'd have to check in my colony series, my first series, that's a trilogy. And I also raised Beast Frog. And, uh, Beast were starting to, to, uh, disappear. Hives were starting to disappear. I started thinking about it. And, uh, I had a hive disappear on me, plus the burnout time, but I I was, and I also hunt deer, you know, I fill my freezer up every year with venison, but I had a hive disappear, and I'm sitting out in the woods, this is about 2015, 2016, and uh, a bee flew by in the middle of the woods and went up the bluff, and I'm thinking, what would happen to the earth when the bees disappear? Well, I started logically thinking you know and uh, free associating and i know what will happen my uh when there's a chinese sage that says when the last bee's wings on earth stop fluttering mankind as we know it will cease to exist well that's very true that's 100 percent true because uh 30 of all earth's domesticated crops are pollinated by bees and 90 of the pollination and, and the wild is done by bees the earth would starve and the way you know i'm free associating and saying okay the earth starves so all the have-nots from all the starving countries are going to cross the borders and come after the people that have food they're going to close their borders and eventually somebody's going to get crazy and set off an atomic bomb and uh, that's where the colony series started right there and did you just write that from from what came to your mind, or did you have a long outlining session? Oh, well, I never outline. I always, what, what comes to my mind, and, and I know a lot of people outline a book. I have never, I'm working on number 10 now, I think. But uh, I never outline anything, but I research heavily. So I, you know, I research, you know, what will happen if an atomic war happens? What will, what will happen to the Earth? What will happen to the stratosphere? Well, What will happen is the stratosphere will be clogged with soot from everything that's disintegrated. It will blot out the sun for 10 years and Earth will freeze into a big snow cone. And uh, 10 years later, it'll start thawing. Well, all life on the surface of the Earth will cease to exist. The only, the only thing that will survive is people that went inside the Earth somewhere and had enough food and water to, to last a decade. And that's, that, that's all about, and that, you know, mine was, uh, you know, as a beekeeper, you know, the protagonist went in, found a way to get inside, found a cave, took his family in, and, and uh, some things happened. He was, it's another time travel book, but he went back in time and met his 
great-grandfather about 30 times removed who was involved in the earth before the great flood and uh, went into the earth when the great flood happened with 13 other families. And uh, he comes back in time. He's now presently in the second part of the earth where, uh, you know, the earth has been destroyed, but the people, the survivors are going, once the earth thaws, will come to the surface in the be the beginning, the third book, and it's still good against evil, you know. Will evil take over, and when earth thaws for the new beginning, will there be a new beginning, or will darkness reign forever? And that's the premise of the three books. But why do you not outline? I, I have never felt a need for it. Uh, I I don't know if I'm God made me to where I just uh, I can recall what 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 my structure is you know the previous chapter or I I, I don't know I mean you know I just uh, I don't outline I never have and how about the how about the writing process do you have a set routine a, a disciplined schedule for when you write how much that's a good question uh, I would like to say yes. Uh, And incidentally, I my writing process is old school. I write a manuscript and then type it in because my uh, somehow my I, I, I say I like to think through my fingers, and uh, I lose the tr in the translation by typing what's coming out of my head. So I write it down longhand, and then if something changes, I write in the, in the you know every free space is just full of words. You know, and my assistant. Has been with me 20 years and she can decipher my writing she was my paralegal as a prosecutor and a private attorney and we're still together does she also do the editing in your work yeah uh you know typically uh in any kind of writing you know you try to have a beta reader which is a like a non-professional uh reader go through it for mistakes well we both read legal briefs and uh, she's actually a paralegal I put her through paralegal school she missed one in a year but uh, we both have read so much that we could spot stuff so I'll go I'll, I'll get it down in a manuscript give it to her she'll type it up and uh, that's like I said we're in like uh, chapter 16 of book three uh, in our editing process now but she'll type it up uh, on dragon and, and give it back to me and I'll go through it and typically any chapter I'll find 50 or 60 minor mistakes uh, as an alpha reader reading it and then I give it back to her she'll type it up again and hand it back to me and I'll go through it again and find four or five so we bounce it back and forth between each other three or four times and then we'll send it in for the proof but you don't have a professional editor that you rely on correct correct why not uh, I found they're not that good There, uh, you can you can have a professional do it and send it back, and there'll still be mistakes in that book. I can do it my way and uh, send it off, get the proof, send, have a proof come back, and maybe find a half a dozen mistakes in the proof. So I just haven't found it necessary. And how about the because with writing a book and then publishing a book, there's so many parts involved. How about the cover design? How do you go about that? We design our own covers. Uh, we have a graphic, uh, Nancy, my assistant, 
has a friend that's like a graphic designer. We, the, what I do, like in uh, the path of Kokopelli. Kokopelli is an Indian god. Uh, I looked up Kokopelli. Kokopelli uh, is a little hunched over figurine. If you've got the book, you'll see the little hunched over flute player. Uh, my wife and I actually met him floating down the Colorado River a few years ago. He was etched in petroglyphs all over the Pueblos, uh, Indians down there. He's a huge god down there, god of fertility and good fortune. But uh, that was that was my cover for uh, Cocopelli. We were down there, and then we picked up a couple of little throw rugs that had a form of Cocopelli on there. That is the picture there. We designed the English Times, the fob watch that's on the front. If you look at that, it shows a tennis shoe walking through the timepiece, and on the other side, it shows a cowboy boot coming out. That's our logo for every English Times book, and, and in the path of Cocopelli and Murphy's Diggings, number two, in Making Tracks, which is number three, which will be coming out. And so you have your book written. You have all the parts. You edited it. You did the cover design, and then... Why did you choose to go the self-publishing route? I uh, I didn't choose to go. That's almost self-preservation. It's uh, you know Nancy has probably uh, first I ha I got a publicist and uh, used to learned how to do a query letter uh, synopsis. You know the short query, the story description, uh, elevator pitch, and all that and. Uh, Then he creates the uh, marketing paper that we give out to everybody and and sent that. But, uh, you know, we probably approached 200 so far. You never quit. We've uh, approached 200 publishers, and uh, I've never never got one that, that, that accepted it yet. Did you get any feedback from those that you contacted? Oh, you know, we got we got a lot of, of people coming back to us, but it was, uh, you know, this just isn't the fit that we're looking for. And, you know, honestly, these people, there's about 250,000 uh, books that are published a year, maybe in the United States, out of three or four million that are written. So it's, uh, you know, it's not unexpected. You just have to keep plugging. So it's not a it's not a categorical stance that you have something against traditional publishers. It's just you know they're unfortunately a publisher is like anybody else. They want to take a chance that is extremely minimal. If there's a, a, a writer out there that's already had success, they're going to go with them first. Uh, you know, and you have to get in each niche. Uh, you know, find it takes hours and hours to get publishers that are in the niche you're in or in the genre you're in, uh, which my genre is uh, fantasy, Western fiction, science fiction. And uh, you go to there and then you, you know, you approach them, but it, uh, it just, it's a, it's a long drawn out process. So in the meantime, I go into self-publishing and self-publishing you, uh, well, you know, you go through the steps, you know, you have to, Use the template uh, for your acknowledgments and your dedications, uh, table of contents, back cover, and about the author. And then you upload it all and order the proof, and it comes back and review the proof and make changes, and then you're out there. So you, you, know, you put 
word of that on your website and uh, anywhere else you're trying to advertise, go from there. Was the self-publishing process, the world of self-publishers, was that how you expected it to be? You know, the honest, honestly, uh, I'd say the vast majority of, of writers never sell past a thousand copies of, of any given work, and I'm probably right there in the middle of them. And did you, did you go into the self-publishing, the self-publishing, knowing that and expecting that? Well, sure. Uh, you know, unfortunately, social media is—it's just that social media. You know, you, every everybody's got their hand out. They want they want money for whatever they do, and you know, I've I've been on every kind of. You know, I'm I'm on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, and I've advertised locally all over the place. And it's just you just get your name out there always, and uh, wait for something to take fire. You brought us a little passage of one of your books to read today, right? I did. All right, uh, this is chapter one from book two. It's uh, called A Slight Mistake. Pushing through the brush, I parked my truck by the creek, then covered it with a tarp. Both of us put on our guns and backpacks. If I remember, the main gold rush is around 1848, but we're still going to pop out in 1874 until crossing the portal rock out front. Once we get away from the cabin, let's camp out and read the letter to see what supplies we're supposed to be buying. I guess wagons and mules will have to be bought again. Man, I hate that. A couple of those old mules were all right. Jim stayed quiet. Once inside, the situation grew deadly serious. I grabbed the nugget and nugget packet before dropping the saddlebag back in the hole. Jim's voice faded from behind. I don't like this, Jack. See you at the corral. A little rat bailed on me again, just like last time. I turned, driving, diving right after him, and suddenly it got a little later in the day. Peering around the cabin's corner on my hands and knees, I saw them. Outlined by the sun, at ridgetop, three horsemen stared downward intently. An instant later, both feet tore up the ground, running for our horses and mules. Jim had already led them out, and they were ready to go. Once over the portal, we were a mile away before even thinking about slowing down. We're far enough away, don't you think, Jim asked. Yeah, this is the place we stopped the first time. Let's bed down here for the night and find out where we're going. Wahoo, California, here we come, Jim whooped excitedly. Read her letter, Jack. I can't wait. The suspense is in tears. First the animals, then a campfire. It's just us again, remember? After a rush job of feeding and setting up a quick camp, we got close enough to the fire for reading. By the flames, I slowly and carefully unfolded Donna Maria Elizabeth DeVia's letter. There, in her beautiful handwriting, our old haunting friend came to life once more. My fellow travelers, you've certainly got adventures in store for you on this journey. Hopefully you have read my single introduction letter, which is Mark read this letter first. If you did so, you will know each figurine represents a different time and place. If not, we meet for the first time. Buenos dias. I encourage you to read my letter, first letter, in order to understand what will be happening. With that being said, accepting the mountain man excursion, I found this venture to be the most challenging. You will be exiting the portal outside of Seattle, Washington in 1881. Welcome to the great Alaskan gold rush. 
future adventures lay in store that you cannot ever even imagine, but be prepared. Did she say Alaska, Jack? Jim asked incredulously. He said we were going to California. Alaska is cold. I'm going to freeze to death. I looked at Jim with eyes the size of half dollars and said, Oops, wrong gold rush. Jim, I hope you brought your long johns. Jim gave me a sideways glance and said, I'm guessing there won't be any sunny beaches or skimply dressed girls there either. Good job, you idiot. Now what? Perfect. And how long did it take you to, to, to write that book from first idea to the finished version? From start to finish in manuscript or, or completely done, ready for sale? Eight months. And do you feel that you wasted a lot of time in the writing process, yet you that the next time you know that you're going to be a lot faster? No. <laughs> Short answer, no. I, I don't feel that any of it's wasted time. I, you know, I could probably uh, dispense with the, the manuscript part of it and just go straight into typing. But uh, like I said, I just, I lose feeling for it somewhere. The, the manuscript to me, I, I just, I like feeling the page and, and, and seeing my word go out there in ink. I, I don't know. There's something about it. So could I save a, a month? Yeah, maybe. Would it be as good? Not to my heart. What are you, your future plans? I'm going to continue writing. I've, uh, you know, I've quit the law. I'm still a, you know, I'm a, an attorney in good standing with the state of Missouri right now. I'm on inactive status, so I could make one call to the Supreme Court of Missouri and, and be at the courtroom tomorrow, but I, I won't do it. You know, um, I, I like what I'm doing. My world is slowed down. Uh, and I, I just, uh, I, in, in fact, I've got book five laying here, the first three or four pages of book five done, and it's just a matter of picking it back up and starting again. Yeah, I know I could do it. I, I have, I'd have to do a two or three weeks of heavy research but uh, it's just, uh, it wouldn't be a problem. Do you also have a release window already for that? Uh, not not the newest book. Yeah, oh, the one we're editing? Yeah. Uh, you know, we get the proof back. It's uh, We're looking at reading through that proof another two weeks to a month. So I'm looking at a release window on it. What is this? It's, say, it's September 1st of the year, maybe less. And... Where can the listeners find you and your books online? WalterStevenBeauty.com And I'm always blogging. I uh, put, you know, I've got uh, a trailer of Murphy's Diggings on there. There's a trailer of the Colony series. Everything, you know, current current stories about the crazy life my friend and I lived out on the road, which they're all true. Uh, poetry that I write at least weekly. I, uh, I think I, I'm due for another one. I, actually, I've got it laying on my desk. I just haven't put it in the system yet. So, uh, WalterStevenGeating.com, you'll uh, get an insight into my crazy world. Jump on and take a look. Awesome. Walter, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. It's been enjoyable. I'd like to come back if I could when I get the other one put out there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Eldrick Talks. You can find all the links to the socials and the books that we talked about in this episode's description. 
New episodes are coming out every Friday. For more information about upcoming episodes, head over to elric-talks.com. That's elric-talks.com for more information about upcoming episodes. Thank you again for listening and see you next time.